The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalms 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Father, as we come before your word this morning, I pray that you would uh, be with me, help me to say only the words that you would have me to say. Father, help us to pay close attention to your word. Father, it's in your word that we see Christ, our only hope, our only comfort, both in life and death. So, Father, I pray that we would come before your word humble. Help us to come before uh, your word as attentive hearers, eager, eager to hear what you would have us to say. And Father, I pray that you would help us to understand your word, to believe it, and to obey it. And Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's any kiddos, you may be seated. If there's any kiddos that... Um, want to be upstairs for the Vacation Bible School preview day, you're welcome to do that. Just want to make sure you know about that. We have a number of volunteers and kids who are up there already uh, as we kick off our VBS this next week. They're having a fun preview day. If you uh, weren't here yesterday to help decorate and you're not going to be here this next week uh, for Vacation Bible School, I would welcome you to head upstairs to the upper room and see all the fun castle decorations and and everything they have up there for our kids to enjoy. And uh, just an, a wonderful opportunity for the, the neighborhood, surrounding neighborhood kids to come and hear uh, the gospel through Vacation Bible School. Okay, well, this morning, if you want to find John chapter 17, you can kind of put a finger there. We're going to be, be skipping around some. We're going to start off kind of more heavily uh, with some Old Testament passages but we will ultimately land on John 17. But before I do that, I, I want to read just a couple verses from John chapter 20. This is uh, John's purpose statement. The whole reason that John wrote this gospel, he gives it to us. That, that's one of those things I love is, is you pick up a book and, and a pencil and you're ready to make some notes and 
You're, that one of the first things you're looking for is the author's purpose statement. And you want to circle that and highlight that. That's kind of that touchstone that you keep coming back to as you're working through a book to remember, okay, the author's main point is this. So how does this line up with that? And we're, you kind of keep coming back to that. And it's so important for us to do that with John. So John chapter 20, verse 30, he says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John's purpose in writing this gospel, his passion for th those who had originally get to read it, those who now get to read it, us, his passion is for us to believe that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, we may have life in his name. So let's remember that even as we're working through our passage this morning. So we've been working through uh, what we typically call the upper room discourse, kind of from John chapter 13, now through John 17. And this is where it, this is where it ends in John 17. We, we began with stories like Jesus washing the disciples' feet, foreshadowing that he was about to give his life as a ransom for us sinners. We, we've heard him speak to his disciples. We've seen Judas leave the room, who we know is going to go betray him. Uh, next week in chapter 18, we'll see that betrayal happen as John comes into the garden and kisses Jesus. Uh, Judas comes in and betrays, betrays Jesus. But here we end in John, th this upper room discourse with John 17, something we, that we typically call the, the high priestly prayer. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But as we've discussed in this upper room discourse, I think probably around the end of chapter 14, Jesus and his disciples, minus Judas, get up and they leave the upper room. He had uh, in John 15, uh, his talk about I am the vine and you are the branches. There's kind of a, a great likelihood that as he's doing that, they're going along the outer wall of the temple, and there's an imagery there of, of a vine as branches. They're now crossing the, the Kidron Valley, heading toward the Garden of Gethsemane. It's Thursday night. It's Thursday night. In only a couple hours, Jesus will be arrested, dragged before the Jewish authorities, dragged before the Gentile authorities, beaten and crucified. So with that background, we now come to John 17, which is the longest recorded prayer in the New Testament. Let's read that together, John 17, and, and as I said, we're going to discuss some Old Testament passages and come back and discuss this in, in greater detail. 
John 17, beginning with verse 1, we'll be reading the entire chapter. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for the, their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, so the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Well, as I mentioned, this is... This is the uh, high priestly prayer. Some, some refer to it as uh, Jesus' farewell prayer. Some say this is the true 
Lord's Prayer. Because what we typically call the Lord's Prayer, which we see in Matthew uh, 6, that's really our prayer. That's the prayer that Jesus, the model prayer that he gives to his disciples for us to pray. This is his prayer. This is his prayer to the Father. And as, as, we'll, as we see in it, he, he even prays with us in mind. If you are in Christ, what, what a rich prayer this is because you know he is praying with you in mind. But like I said, the, the main name that this prayer goes uh, by is the high priestly prayer. And I want to look into that this morning. Explore why this is called the high priestly prayer. But first I want to read a, uh, a passage out of Hebrews. Hebrews 5, if, you're, if you have your Bibles, you can turn. Like I said, we're going to be kind of flipping around uh, through various passages. Feel free to read along with me. This will tie it in uh, to the passage that Josh read out of Psalm 2. But Hebrews 5, 1 through 10 says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but, when one, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, this is from Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is our high priest. And it's important for us to understand exactly what that, the function of the high priest was. And that's why we'll, we'll be looking back in some passages from the Pentateuch. But Psalm 2, this, Psalm 2 kind of gives us a glimpse into eternity past, into uh, God declaring what we call the covenant of redemption with his son. As he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he gives him the nations. And the author of Hebrews uses this here to designate him as God's anointed one. The one who is set up as a high priest to rescue us, to save us. As it says in verse 1 of, of Hebrews Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. It's this role of mediator that we will see uh, from Exodus and Leviticus this morning. It's the role of mediator that the high priest takes, and it's this high priestly role of, of mediation that Christ steps into as God's anointed one called for this very purpose of reconciling us with the holy God. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, For there is one God 
And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So let's look at some of the historical background of the high priest so that we can better understand Jesus' high priestly prayer. Turn with me to Exodus. Exodus 40. We're just going to read a couple verses. But if you recall in Exodus, the people of Israel are brought out of Egypt. God rescues them. God brings them to Sinai, gives them the Ten Commandments and the law. And then he gives them these detailed instructions for building the tabernacle. And at the end of Exodus, they have now constructed the tabernacle. And we read in verses 34 and 35, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There's tension here. This tabernacle that is the meeting place with God that is meant to model the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve had communion with God this tabernacle that is set up for that very purpose, it's set up and God's glory descends and Moses can't enter. There's a tension that communion is not yet fully there. So then we turn to Leviticus. Leviticus is going to help solve this problem as we're given instructions for the sacrifices and the, and the priesthood. The, the thing that all of this is pointing to is the covenant goal that God has given us from the beginning, from the fall onward. The thing that we will see in, in all of its glory at the end of, in, in what's given to us in Revelation, where God says, you will be my people and I will be your God, and you will dwell with me, and I with you. That is the covenant goal. For all the covenants in Scripture, they're all pointing toward this perf perfect union that we can have with God where he is no longer ashamed to call us his people. We can say, he is my God, and he can say, you are my people, and we can actually live with him. We can dwell with him. This is what the whole of Scripture is, is working its way up to. This is what the work of reconciliation that, that Christ has done for us is working its way up to, that we can dwell in the presence of our holy God. So in Leviticus, as the instructions are given for sacrifice and for the priesthood, then in Leviticus 9, verse 22, it says, there, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings, all of those that we had just received instructions about. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted 
and fell on their faces. So you have now where Moses and Aaron have been able to enter into the tabernacle. And God is satisfied with the offerings that they've given him. And the fire comes out from the presence of the tabernacle, from God's presence, and consumes the burnt offering. But then in chapter 10 of Leviticus, just the very next verses, verse 1, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is the key verse for this morning. This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. God will be sanctified. God will be glorified. This is what is necessary for that covenant promise to be in the very presence of God, to dwell with him. This is what must be satisfied for us to dwell in God's presence. He must be sanctified and glorified. Then, as we flip forward in Leviticus to Leviticus chapter 16, this is the center of the Pentateuch, the center of the first five books of Moses, Leviticus 16. And it's, it's central, not only physically in your Bible between those books, but it's central to the very message of these books and to the Bible. It's, it's the instructions for the Day of Atonement. This is the one day of the year that the high priest could enter behind the innermost veil in the tabernacle, go into the holy of holies, the most holy place, and make atonement. He would first make atonement for himself because he was a sinner. He would also make atonement for his family or his house. He would then make atonement for all of Israel. And because of the people's sin, it would even be an atonement for the holy place and the tabernacle itself. Well, this, that pattern is the very thing we see in John 17. The high priestly prayer that is recorded for us here. This is exactly what we see where Jesus first prays for himself in verses 1 through 5, for his disciples in verses 6 through 19, for all of his church in verses 20 through 26, and all with the goal of us dwelling with him and enjoying perfect communion with him. This chapter in John 17, Jesus is here repeating a lot of what he's already said in the upper room discourse. In fact, you'll see a lot of what is in Jesus' prayer even scattered throughout the book of John. 
So we wonder, why, why give us this prayer? If he's already said these things, what's the importance of this prayer? Well, I, I don't know about you, but whenever I'm down, maybe something's going on health-wise or with a family member, whatever it might be, and I have a close friend talk with me about it, and, and they, they talk to me, and they, they give me comforting words and let me know that they're there and let me know that they love me. But then when they pray with me, that, that tends to hit in a very different place. It goes beyond just the words that they said, but they're praying with me. They are bringing these concerns before the throne of God and showing a, a compassion for what is happening. And to an extent, that is what Christ is doing here. But even more than that, as God, as Jesus is bringing this doctrine that he has just declared to the disciples before the throne of grace, he is, he is sealing what he has said. He's sealing all that he uh, had previously said. He's confirming it to make it certain to the disciples and then subsequently to us. If you read the, the historical books in the Old Testament, you'll, you'll frequently come across songs. There's various songs that are recorded for us. And as you read through these historical books and come across these songs, they help us to understand what came before it. It's kind of a, a clarifying moment to sum up all that has come before it. But then it is, they're pointing us forward to what will come. It's helping us to understand the theology or the doctrine of what will follow from that song. And very much this prayer, I believe, serves that same purpose. Jesus is summing up the, do the great doctrines that he has told the disciples, but he's pointing forward to what's about to happen. This is, this is as, as I said, the last part of this upper room discourse. From here on out, we kind of go through more narrative where it's Jesus arrested in the garden. Jesus brought before the Jewish authorities, before the Gentile authorities, Jesus being crucified. His resurrection. These, this, this prayer this high priestly prayer is pointing us to all that God, that of what Christ is about to do. It's confirming his role as our mediator moving forward, his role as our perfect high priest. As Hebrews 9 says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. As our Savior, as our high priest, he is going forward into the Garden of Gethsemane, being prepared to be arrested and be crucified, to die for us. He is offering himself up as that perfect sacrifice. And he is offering himself as the perfect sacrifice from the position of being our perfect 
high priest. So let's look at the Lord's Prayer this morning. There, there is so much that could be said about this prayer. There's, there's so much that we could dig into and dive into, but I do, as, as we're just looking at this one, as one prayer this morning, I want to look specifically at this idea of the importance of sanctification and glorification, this importance of God being sanctified and glorified with those who are in his presence. So in the first five verses, Jesus prays for himself. In verse 1, he says, Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. John doesn't record Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, the one that we're familiar with from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where, where Jesus is in agony and, and sweating, as it were, great drops of blood as the intense pressure is upon him, knowing that his hour has come to suffer far worse than just the whips upon his back and the pain of crucifixion, but to suffer the Father's wrath, the Father's righteous wrath against our sins. As he's facing that hour, he, he prayed this prayer of agony. Father, if possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. But in this prayer, as this is Jesus going to the garden, knowing what's going to happen, it's instructive to us to see what his chief concern is. His chief concern is the glory of the Father. This is that language out of, out of, out of Philippians 2, where he suffered, uh, he obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross, and therefore God highly exalted him so that every knee should bow before him and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and what does it say? To the glory of God the Father. All that he did was to bring glory to the Father. Before all the people, I will be glorified. This is Jesus' heartbeat. This is the well-known kind of first answer to the, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This was our Savior's chief end, to glorify God. And how does he glorify God? Well, the passage tells us, by giving eternal life to all whom the Father has given him. When, when, when Jesus speaks of eternal life here, he's not simply speaking of quantity. We often think of eternal life as just, okay, it's just that we are living on forever. But eternal life is so much more than that because even those souls that are damned to hell will technically live forever. But for those who are in Christ, the eternal life that we have is more than just quantity, it is quality. 
And that, that eternal life begins even now. We can live in the joy of the salvation that Christ has purchased for us. We can live the abundant life of knowing that we are his. It's an entirely new spiritual condition, this eternal life. Verse 3, as we ask, what, what is eternal life? Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. As Brennan talked last Sunday from John 16, this is, this is so much more than just a head knowledge. If I, if I stacked kind of my systematic theologies, I'd probably have a stack about that high of all the books that have been, have been written of j just the systematic theology to help us kind of know who God is and, and know what he's done. I could have those things memorized forwards and backwards. I couldn't. But if I could, even that is not salvation. It's so much more than a head knowledge. It is an intimate knowledge. It's a love for Christ. It's a passion for him. It's a delight in him. But this is one of our greatest struggles. As John, John Calvin wrote, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. We are constantly building little idols in our minds and in our hearts. And these idols can be good things. There is so much of what is good. A spouse, children, our jobs, our church, our Bibles. I, I'm a Bible geek. I love nice Bibles. I could worship those. I could turn them into idols. My heart is a perpetual idol factory. But what is eternal life? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What do you delight in? What do you love and desire more than anything else? Do you find God's glory your chief concern in life? Or do the worries and concerns of life bog you down? Do they cause your focus just to turn inward on yourself? This is our struggle. This is one of our greatest struggles. To truly delight in God, to know him, to allow everything else in life to waste away, to give it up for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. This is, this is Paul's words from Philippians chapter 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ. We ought to be a people who are constantly tipping over all those all those idols in our lives and turning to Christ to delight in knowing Him and worshiping Him. How does Jesus then secure everlasting life for His elect? Or as the passage says over and over and over again, those the Father has given him. Well, he says, he does it by accomplishing the work the Father gave him to do. By accomplishing the work the Father gave him to do. He has not at this point died on the cross. But he, this, this prayer is him saying, my work is as good as done. Even though he's about to go in the garden and weep and pray that the cup might pass from him. He knows, for the, as the author of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he is going to do it. He will not fail as Adam has failed before him, as Israel failed before him. He won't fail. He came to accomplish all that the Father gave him to do in, in John 4. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. His food. You think of the things that we might cherish the most. I, I'm not a foodie, but I know there's some foodies in this room. But even though I'm not a foodie, I love food. And I need food. Jesus says, the very thing that he hungers for the very thing that he enjoys and takes delight in is to do the will of him who sent me, who sent him to accomplish his work. He comes to these final hours leading up to the crucifixion knowing that he has accomplished all that the Father has done. And then on the cross, he will be able to say, it is finished and breathe his last, knowing that he has done everything that he was sent to do. This is knowing that he hasn't sinned a dot. He hasn't sinned in the slightest. Not a blue-collar crime, not, not a little white lie. He hasn't sinned in thought, word, or deed. He's perfectly obeyed. In fact, he hasn't even left undone any obedience. He's perfectly obeyed. He has fulfilled all righteousness. He has done to do, he has done everything that the Father has sent him to accomplish. This makes him our perfect mediator. This makes him our perfect high priest. He's done what you and I could never do. He's done all that is required for us to have peace with God. All that is required for us to dwell with him. Perhaps you think you're desiring God's glory above your own. But you're pursuing it through the twisted false worship of self-righteousness. This is another common thing that even believers constantly stumble into 
is we keep thinking that what we are doing is what makes us right before our holy God. We, we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and we say it's all him, but then the very next moment we find ourselves striving to obey and saying, oh, I know because all, all the rest of my existence tells me that what I do makes me who I am. What I do in my work gives me the promotion that I'm wanting. What I do with my kids is going to turn out the children that I desire the most. And that's a joke. <laughs> the world works that way, but grace doesn't work that way. That's just another one of our idols. And we live a life striving after our own glory. That's what it looks like. Life of works righteousness. But there's only one mediator between God and man, and it's the secret is it's not you. Praise be to God that it's not you, because if it was you, you would be damned to hell for all eternity. We needed a perfect high priest, a perfect mediator, Jesus Christ, to come and do all that is required for us to dwell before God. Before all the people, God says, I will be glorified. In verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. This is priestly language that Jesus uses here as he uh, speaks uh, in verses 17 through 19. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified. Jesus is saying, I set myself apart. I, I've consecrated myself, or more technically, God, the Father, has appointed him to be a, the, our high priest so that he could sanctify us. Just as Aaron or the subsequent high priests would atone for their sins first so that they could then atone for the sins of their household and their nation. This is what Jesus does. He doesn't have any sins to atone for, but he has consecrated himself. He has set himself apart for this holy service of bringing us before God to be holy. This is language that we see in Ephesians 5 as Christ is compared is Christ is basically called the, the perfect husband. As he says, he washes us with the word to be able to present us before God, perfect, spotless, blameless. The word of Christ isn't, isn't o- the, only the beginning of our salvation. It's, it's not, not even just the end of our salvation. It, it's everything in between. This is, the word of God is the very thing that washes us and renews us. And like I said, it's, it's not that we worship the book itself, but we are in the word because the word is the very thing that shows us Christ. The word is the very thing that shows us our Savior. As Peter declared earlier in John, Lord, 
to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Does your Bible reading or sitting under the preaching of the word cause you just to simply stop and check a box? One of the things I love to do, I love to wake up in the morning and the first thing I do is read my, my Bible. But I have to confess, there are times that even in that, I realize I am simply reading the Bible as if it is any other book. I'm not reading it longing to see Christ. It's become just a, a box to check off my to-do list. I want to have the heart of my Savior who says his food was to do the will of his Father who sent me. I want to pick up the word of God and feast upon it. To know that in these words I find Christ and it's in Christ that I have eternal life. Well, for the sake of time, we just skip to the last section Verses 20 through 26, this is the glorious, the glorious part of this prayer that we could all just rejoice over. Because in this part of the prayer, Christ is saying, this prayer isn't just for me. It isn't just for the disciples who are within hearing distance as we're crossing the, the Kidron Valley. This prayer is for all my children for all those who will hear what these men, these apostles of mine, as their word goes out and is recorded in Scripture, for all who will ever hear these words and believe in them, this is who I'm praying for. He's praying for you if you are in Christ. He's praying for me. This is our Savior praying for you. In the coming weeks as we come to the crucifixion, it's so important to realize when Christ is hanging on the cross and suffering the wrath of the Father, it's not just nebulous wrath against sin in general. He's suffering specifically for your sin. He's suffering for my sin. But the more positive aspect of that, beyond that the Father's wrath is being satisfied, which is glorious, He loves us. And He is not praying here for just some nebulous group. It is the church, but the church is made up of individuals. He is praying for you and for me. Verse 22, he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved, loved them even as you loved me. He is sanctifying, setting us apart, glory, even as I Isaiah says, that God doesn't share his glory with any other. And yet, 
my mind is blown as Jesus says he shared, shares his glory with us. But this is all for the purpose that we can dwell with him. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. We must share in these things so that we can stand and live and rejoice in the very presence of God. Verse 24 says, Father, this brings us to that, that, the point of dwelling with him. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Not only does the Father love us with the very love that he has loved his son with from the very before the foundation of the world. He so much loves us that he wants to bring us into his presence. His fallen creatures, his rebellious creatures, instead of just squishing us and saying, done, enough, he sent his son to live that perfect life of obedience that we could never live to perfectly fulfill the law, to die in our place, to suffer the wrath of the Father against our sins so that we could be ushered in to his kingdom, that we could be ushered into his presence to live before him and enjoy the love that he, the, the love with which he has loved his son from before the foundation of the world. There's no sweeter news that we would enjoy God's love and his presence. This is how the whole story wraps up, as I alluded to earlier. Revelation 21. As we have the scene in heaven, just verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is it, this is it. This is the fulfillment of, this co of the covenant promise. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. As we come before the communion table this morning, the Lord's Supper, reason we call it communion. It is a taste of what we will have there in glory. As we will sit before, around the table, enjoying a feast in the presence of our Savior, this is a foreshadowing of that. He has given us the Lord's Supper that we can enjoy to a degree this communion with Him and therefore with one another. As we come before this small feast, which pictures the much larger feast in the new heavens and new earth, this is a family meal. If you don't believe the message, if, if you still have idols in your heart that you have propped up and you say, no, I am not going to let go of these idols. Jesus sounds like a nice guy, 
a good teacher. I think there's lots of good wisdom I can glean from, from Scripture. I think my life is better because I am in church and I'm in his word. But these idols are what I worship and love. If that's where your heart is right now, I ask you not to take of these elements. Because scripture tells us that we can't do both. We can't serve two masters in this sense. We can't worship false gods and the one true God. Yes, we struggle with those idols because our hearts are perpetually churning out the little idols. We struggle with that. But if your chief hope and goal is to worship Jesus Christ, to love him above all else, to glorify God, then we will continue to push away those idols. If that is your heart cry, then I invite you to this table. Even with all the sin that you're struggling against, even with all the doubt that you have, this table doesn't say, come and enjoy this only when you have had a wonderful week without any sin. All of us have failed. All of us have sin, even here and now. Doesn't say that if you are completely assured of your salvation. Doesn't say that if you have complete boldness to say, I am a child of God, then you are welcome to this table. No. The table says, if you know me, then know that I know you. And Jesus Christ is our great high priest has gone before us to satisfy to mediate all that was required between us and God so that we can sit down and repent of our sins and strive for obedience and rest in Christ and enjoy this meal together. Let me pray for uh, the Lord's Supper and then we'll sing and take that together. Father, as we do come before this meal that you have given to us, this meal that you've instructed to us to celebrate in your word is one of the sacraments that you've given us. I pray that you would help us to enjoy it in the light of your grace, to know all that you have done for us. Help us, Father, to rest in the perfect work of our great high priest, to rest in the perfect sacrifice of his very own life. So that we can take it with confidence, knowing that in and of ourselves we are not worthy. Only in Christ are we counted worthy to come to your table. And Father, as we take this, I pray that you would help us to remember that ultimately we will, be, we will enjoy the wedding feast of the Lamb, the wedding supper of the Lamb in your presence. And we can only be in your presence 
because you sanctify us. You glorify us so that we can glorify you. Father, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.